loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming Dr. Sherry Walling. Sherry's a clinical psychologist, speaker, podcaster, author, and mental health advocate. Her company, Zen Founder, helps entrepreneurs and leaders navigate transition, rapid growth, loss, conflict, or any manner of complex human complex human experiences. She hosts the Zen Founder podcast, which has been called a must-listen by both Forbes and Entrepreneur Magazine, and has been downloaded more than one million times. She's also the host of Mind Curious, a podcast exploring innovations in mental health via healthcare via psychedelics. Her best-selling book, The Entrepreneur's Guide to Keeping Your Shit Together, combines the insight and warmth of a therapist with the truth-telling mirth of someone who has been there. Her soon-to-be-released new book, Touching Two Worlds, explores new strategies for finding wholeness in the aftermath of loss. Sherry and her husband, Rob, reside in Minneapolis, where they spend their time driving their children to music lessons. She's also been known to occasionally perform as a circus aerialist. Welcome, Sherry. <laughs> welcome. Thank you for having me. It's good to be with you. You're very, you're very welcome. And, um, you know, I, I think we should really start with you telling your story. Um, obviously, your book has a lot of very helpful uh, ways to look at going through grief and it's very realistic. I like that, you know, that that it's um, definitely uh, the real deal about grief, no, no sugarcoating. But could you tell the listeners how you came to write a book on grief after having done uh, work with entrepreneurs for so long? Yeah, it's, it's an unusual transition for my, my community in the business world is like, why are you writing about grief? You're supposed to be writing about high performance. <laughs> um, but this book happened because life happened. So I was going about my life as we all do, and then had a series of phone calls. And the first phone call was to let me know that my dad had been diagnosed with esophageal cancer. And then the next phone call was to let me know that my brother, who had struggled some with alcohol abuse throughout the course of his life, had taken a major turn and was really in the throes of a, a life-threatening addiction. Mm. And over a series of 18 months, there were more phone calls and more phone calls, um, ending with my, my father passing away from cancer. And then six months after his death, my, we lost my brother to suicide. So my life was really turned upside down by these series of losses. And I think the book was what happened in the middle of the night when I couldn't sleep and I was awake and I was writing and I was thinking and processing and observing. And I wrote so much that I had enough material for a book. And I talked to enough people who are going through similar kinds of experiences that I came to think this book 
could be helpful. Like the kinds of things that I'm experiencing, other people are experiencing and it's hard to know how to talk about them or where those conversations happen. And I think a book is a really lovely place to tell stories and exchange knowledge um, when people are in these sort of dark places. Hmm. One thing that stood out about the book as a therapist who was uh, myself doing therapy before my major loss and then kept doing it afterwards, um, that the, the terms on which I was doing it really, really changed. And I think I heard that in your book, too, that um, knowing how to kind of make ourselves feel better, uh, you know, being able to find our mental health is not always available in deep grief. Yeah, I think that there's sort of a survivalist part of deep grief, right? You, you wake up in the morning and sort of realize, oh, I'm still here. I'm still here and it still hurts. And that's like the story of the day. And then you go to sleep. I must be alive. It still hurts. Yes, I'm still here and it still hurts. Okay. So I think that there were lots of days like that for me. And so, yes, of course, the tenor of my work changed and the the way that I came to my job as someone who supports the well-being of others was um, as somebody who really just had to say, like, I'm still here. You're still here. We're all still here. Look at that. That's sort of magic. You know, it's always an irony to me. I, I think of this almost every interview I have, that kind of the worst thing that happens does increase your credibility when it comes to talking to people about loss. Um, yeah. it, it's really hard to trust someone who hasn't had loss to talk about loss. Yeah, I didn't fully appreciate the weight of that before. But I think people can sort of smell it on you, right? Mm -hmm. They have this intuition, even if I never say a word about it, about what I've lived through and the experiences of, of losing my brother quite traumatically. Um, but people know that there's kind of a no-nonsense grittiness to you that it just indicates, oh, this is someone who's been through some things. Mm, absolutely. And, and you kind of bring up there differentiating between the loss of your father, which was certainly major and grievous and all that, but I wouldn't exactly say traumatic. Um, then compared with the gr grief over your brother, um, and that sounded extremely traumatic. Since they happened so close together, I don't imagine you can really differentiate, but were they very different experiences for you? They really were. So I was present with my father when he died, and it was one of the most profound and beautiful experiences of my life. It, it felt to me a little bit like what I experienced when I gave birth to my children, this sense of like, something very important is happening mm -hmm. and it's only going to happen a couple times in my life. And I want to be really present and really loving and available. You know, it just felt so profound and deep and sacred. And I lost my dad when I was 
Oh, I 40 ish, which is a little early, but like developmentally appropriate, if you will. Right. Like, it's not that be, early. <laughs> right. Middle adulthood. You, right. lose a, you lose a parent. Like I have friends who've lost parents. I, it's it's sort of in line with the trajectory of the order of things, um, whatever that means. But I think you know what I mean. I know um, exactly losing, what you mean. For <laughs> sure. Losing a sibling. My brother was supposed to sort of be around, right? He's seven years younger than me. He was only 33 when he died. And it, so not only did it disrupt the order of things, but the nature of his death was, was violent. And it was, um, he was alone. And it was in such contrast to this loss of my dad, where we kind of walked him up to the gate and waved goodbye and sort of said, I'll see you on the other side or whatever happens. Versus and, and my brother again. Yeah. And not really a big sense that it was the um you did come to terms with over the this over the course of the book, but at first it didn't seem like it had to happen. Your dad's death was, you know, at some level predictable with the illness he had. Yeah. But I didn't get the sense that you predicted your brother's death. You were fighting for him to live. I think yeah, that's a different is, emotional experience. Absolutely. Yeah. One feels like the completion of the story and one feels like the loss of a battle. Mm. And how did you, in fact, you know, because what's happened has happened. We have to accept it eventually, right? Right. <laughs> but how did you come to not put that on your own plate, as it were? Because um, I know you did a lot to support your brother, to care for him, to be present for him, to try to help. And I think yeah. that's really tough. Yeah, I I wrote a chapter in the book. The chapter is called The Chapter Where I Grapple with Blame and Responsibility. And it really was me going through this process of sort of how much control do we have? How much does it mm. matter when I was loving or when I was angry or, you know, do my actions, are they that powerful in the life of someone else? And I think ultimately I came to this sort of sense of the parallel process between my dad and my brother, recognizing that my brother was in significant pain from an overwhelming and very deadly illness. Hmm. We just don't think about addiction or depression like we think about cancer, but in a way it's, it's not actually that different. There are cells that are broken and sometimes the depth of destruction of those cells results in the loss of life. So I guess there's a little bit of the science person in me that is understanding hmm. like something was broken in him and it wasn't cancer in the way that I could draw it on a, like, you know, on a whiteboard as I explained right. cancer to my children. <laughs> but um, you didn't, you didn't get a, a kind of blow by blow on, on uh, expected outcomes. You didn't get a prognosis, none of that. You don't, but as a psychologist, I do, right? I know right. in my head a certain number of people who have severe addiction die from that disease. So I knew the stats intellectually, but it feels very different emotionally. That was interesting, the way in which it's hard to, it's 
it's very doable to explain death to children, in my opinion. Uh, be real within being expressing it in a way the kid can understand given their age. Yes. Right? I learned so much from my kids about what they could handle and that the truth was better, right? But there's a whole load around suicide. Are you kind of making that an option in their worlds in a way that's, that's so upsetting and disturbing to you? You know, Um, so that must have been a hard thing to to grapple with because you seem like a a person who believes in being honest with your children. And on the other hand, how much do you tell them about their uncle's death? Right. And and again, that deep contrast. So when my dad was diagnosed with cancer, he came. I live in Minnesota. He came here to be a Mayo Clinic for a time. So he lived with us through his first few rounds of chemo when he was figuring out dosage. And so my children were part of that whole story. They watched him be sick. They went to the hospital with him sometimes. Like they were just, they knew what was happening and Mm -hmm. it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, it was understandable to them. I think suicide is more difficult because again, you can't draw it on a diagram and there's sort of this mixed understanding in the field and in the research literature around what having close up encounter with someone who's been lost by suicide, what that does to someone's psyche, whether that opens it up as a potential or a possibility. We certainly see um, clusters of suicides in schools or in communities. And so I think there is some, you know, need for caution or just thoughtfulness. Um, But ultimately I, I described it to them really in terms of, of depression and addiction being, being deadly, being potentially deadly. And when they're in combination, they're especially dangerous. You know, it just came to my mind. I, I have a pretty strong belief that not talking about things is, is kind of the, the worst option. So I wonder if some of the cluster experiences are kind of a, a shame reaction where nobody talks about it mm. and, and then it becomes hidden and you know no one wants to say they've had those thoughts and i i don't know the answer to that and yeah. certainly that's a cultural phenomenon that i'm aware of i'm sure you are too but sometimes the obvious answer is not the answer yes and i i share your deep conviction that the not talking about it is the most dangerous thing and that even in those difficult conversations where I don't, you know, I don't have a super great explanation for why my brother died in a way that my eight-year-old is going to understand, but enough information and conversation to say, we can talk about these feelings. We can talk about um, like our own destructive thoughts, that that's not a scary topic in this family. I'm thinking about my oldest grandson who, um, his uh, another grandmother was quite sick, um, and and at the same time he got very very anxious about death, mm-hmm. and not directly like I'm afraid she will die, just about death in general, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and so given that I'm the you know the death person in our family, <laughs> <laughs> you're the go-to go-to death consultant. Exactly, exactly. Um, you know, my daughter and son-in-law who are very open with their kids, they were like, we think a conversation with you might help. 
And uh, I ended up introducing him to my wife who died and talking about her importance in my life now. And, you know, we had a perfectly wonderful conversation. He could have that conversation very easily. I think he was about seven. Uh, But it needed to have a frame that someone else put on it. Yeah. And one of my children was very, very scared about death after these losses impacted our family. And he still is very like, where are you going, mom? What time will you be back? Are you okay? Like he's, he's attentive in that way that he, he holds in some way the fragility of life a little deeper mm. than mm-hmm. other children his age. And I think that's been the sort of positive adaptation that we've tried to help him with is like, you know how precious it is. You appreciate the preciousness of it, which is a little existential for a little kid, but um, I'm not it's sure what's happening. It, yeah. I, I've, I've, my kids are all grown now and I think it has impacted their lives uh, in that way to really value their lives and not waste them. Uh, I, I really do think it's, it's put, a bit of a fire in them, not in a, you know, driven kind of, oh, I got to be doing something, but yeah. more, what is it that I really want to do? We do a lot of hugs and a lot of I love yous, like ritually when someone's leaving the house, when someone's coming. And I, we didn't do that so carefully or intentionally before loss became part of the landscape of our family. Back after the break. Be sure to like the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel on Facebook. You'll find great health tips from the experts. Find out more about your favorite shows and talk back to our team. Search Voice America Health or click the like button under the player today. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com com slash good grief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. 
Resiliency is the human capacity to lean into individual and collective strengths with compassion and grit when faced with the challenges of lived experience. Join host Elaine miller Karras for Resiliency Within, a program of hope and healing designed to inspire you to integrate wellness into your life, your family, and your community. In challenging times, you'll want to tune in every week. Resiliency Within can be heard every Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Sherry Walling, the author of Touching Two Worlds. And Sherry, um, since we were just talking about your kids and trying to navigate all of this with your kids, would you share a part of your book about them? Sure, I'd love to. This essay is called Disney, Death and Murder for Children. I knew my son was watching me. We were in the theater watching Frozen 2 and inhaling fistfuls of popcorn. It was the scene in the latter half of the film where Anna believes that her sister Elsa is dead. Elsa is frozen solid at the bottom of the river, and Anna faces the realization that she must carry on life without her. My son turns his body and looks directly at me, ignoring the film. He knows what's coming. I begin to weep. This is what he expects. He pats my arm with his little hand, which is buttery from popcorn and sticky from sour gummy worms. Anna's body slumps over and her broken voice begins a haunting song of grief. You've gone to a place I cannot find. This grief has a gravity. It pulls me down. Cartoon Anna and I together mourn our lost siblings. My young son comforts me while I cry. As I think about it, it is such a twisted scene. Can't we just go to the movies and eat a bunch of crappy food, have a couple of laughs and call it a night? None of us intended for me to have a grief spiral in an animated film about a talking snowman and a plot line featuring a guy who's enmeshed with his reindeer. But the film is all about grief. Is it about one daughter's quest to heal intergenerational trauma and right the wrongs of the past? It is about another daughter trying to learn the stories of her lost parents. And in so doing, she enters a space that is unsafe and threatens her life completely. I guess it is completely predictable that this story would remind me so much of my own family. My son certainly saw it coming. He's nine now. He knows that he has a mother who lives in grief. He knows that his mother has a wound where her brother once was and that that wound gets reopened from time to time. He's seen me cry more than I ever imagined he would. So that's just this, a, a little this, piece of this, that chapter. This begins to define my love of children's movies because <laughs> a lot of them have that scene, but they kind of make it manageable a bit, you know, usually. But is there anything wrong with 
crying because it reminds you of your brother. Is there anything wrong with your son knowing it would, you know? I'm thinking not as long as it's not the weight of the world. And it's just, yeah, that reminded. Yeah, I'm I'm thinking not too. I think it's just unexpected. You mm-hmm. know, when I had my I had my children, I I didn't really think through the importance of teaching them about grief. It wasn't sort of like, like I knew we have to talk about sex and we have to talk about brushing your teeth and how like they're just sort of a checklist in my mind and grief wasn't on the checklist. Mm-hmm. And, and it should have been, it should have been in terms of like, since it's so predictable. Yeah. Universal experiences <laughs> that are hard and make us, if we alone. live so long, right. <laughs> But, I, but yeah, I would, and I think that's why I chose to write about it in the book, because it's so important, I think, for us to be really open and honest and, and teach children how to grieve. And I think my son knew that grief was coming the minute that there was this sort of parallel process between me and the cartoon character. But there, there's a lot of death in children's films, so much so that like researchers have looked at this. And they found that two-thirds of kids' movies depicted the death of an important character, while only like half of the films for adults um, have that level of death. So it's a common plot point in kids' films, which I, you know, I think is is fine. I don't have a major reaction to that by itself, but I do have a little bit of a reaction to often in those depictions of death, there's not much grief. Mm-hmm. There's death and then an action or a reaction or a like build the robot, save the world, you know, having to trudge forward. Yes, it's the hero's journey, but there's not a lot of um, emotional nuance around how someone finds the strength to put themselves back together after major loss. Mm. And I, I have to say this is a very subjective view, but it's not that much different in adult um, movies and and TV, uh, the joke in my current marriage is we try to watch something that's comedy or, you know, lightweight, and then somebody dies every time <laughs> when we're trying to Here take, we go again. When, she, when especially I'm trying to give her a break, right? <laughs> <laughs> I live in this world oh, well. all the time, honey. I'm oh, fine. well. <laughs> But of course, the kids part does refer back to fairy tales as well, which mm-hmm. some people have have uh, considered to be related to when parents actually used to regularly die and kids did have to navigate the world without their parents. Um, so maybe that's been sort of continued. Well, certainly in other stages of human existence and in other cultures besides the one that you and I are both in currently in North America, people or children have a lot more exposure to death, right? They would be in the room when a grandparent's dying or um, they would have siblings that would die. And that would be just, again, part of the fabric of life for what it is to come into the world and to grow up in the world. And in a way, I think we've so sort of anesthetized our society and separated it so much from death that kids don't have much exposure to death. And so that makes grief this really unknown territory where they have not a lot of practice and not a lot of exposure to. And also the weight of 
everyone else's discomfort, since there's not an agreed upon comfort with the subject, I know that could, that had moments of discomfort for my children mm-hmm. because they were not, uh, you know, no one knew exactly how to talk to them. Fortunately, our community did. So I think that really helped. But um, their classmates, you know, their childcare workers or grade school teachers, maybe not so much. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that I worked on in preparation for launching this book that was just part of my own process through these past years is I actually created an original circus show about the loss of my brother to suicide. And because of the nature of a circus show, people think it's a show for children. And so, you know, we had a lot of conversation with parents who were bringing kids to the show around Mm -hmm. the content of the show, just so Mm -hmm. they would have, you know, here's the heads up. These are the things that we're going to say and that we're going to talk about so you can support your kids in this experience. But um, it, it was, it was really, for me, very gratifying to create something that had kind of intergenerational appeal that was this way of talking about or telling a story related to death by suicide that was unusual, but was also somewhat accessible to um, certainly to older children and to teens. You know, when I, when I read about your work in that area, it reminded me of uh, a huge part of my youngest daughter's life in high school. She was in a, uh, I guess we have to say dance company, but it was so much more than that. They wrote their own plays. It was kind of an activist theater mm-hmm. and um, they all learned aerial arts. Oh, wow. And so there were parts of the show that she was, you know, a kind of main piece of where they were up on ropes or up on silks or whatever. And it was really an effective way to bring the audience in and make it more possible to hear the message. Do you find that too? That, um, you know, because it was so dramatic, they were up on the ceiling, you know, and they were um, doing all kinds of things that accentuated the point they were making. I think aerial arts, because they automatically have a sense of danger and people who are observing almost always have the sense of like, like the, the inhale of breath, like, are they okay? Are they going to fall? Are they going to make is it? Is this all right? Like, are we consenting to this? But it has that, that, as you say, dramatic sort of edge state uh, feeling for people. Um, and I think they're really powerful ways to tell stories because it's so embodied. Um, I, I am not a dancer. I don't have the background in dance, but in comparison to dance, I think Ariel is really interesting because you can play so much with the, the vertical, like the height, the there's nuance and beauty, but there's also this big power, big drops, big drama that mm. we can express through the body. There was a part of the book where you basically listed all kinds of, of um, different things that people might do to get totally absorbed in a body experience in grief. And that resonated with me. Uh, the particular way I do it was was pretty far down the list. I'm I'm in a um, a choir. It happens to be a gospel choir, which is I'm totally convinced grief music. Yeah. 
Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, it comes out of a deep grief experience. And I've just found that so uh, helpful to kind of work things out of my system. Does mm. Ariel do the kind of a similar thing for you that you it sort of works things out? Yeah, it works things out and it works things in. <laughs> and what I mean is um, when I'm doing Ariel, and I imagine a gospel choir could be the same. It's, it's so demanding of my attention that it's the only thing I'm really thinking about. So in the worst moments of my loss, when sort of that was the only, only movie playing on the only channel in my brain was like, my dad's dead, my brother's dead, my brother's dead, my dad's dead. I could go to Ariel and just think right hand, left hand, up I go. You know, I just had this different narrative and it, I had to have my brain fully involved. So that was the like, I can only do this. I can dial into one thing. But as I had a little more capacity, Ariel then became this wonderful expression for all of the emotion that I was holding. It can be tender and beautiful. It can be powerful and, and dramatic, as we said, it can be angry, can be scary. All of the feelings that I felt could find a shape in my body when I was in the fabric. So I think it allowed both this inward focus and this outward expression that I, I really desperately needed. And I'm, I'm um, struck by the idea that it was different things for you at different times. At first, sort of a contrary experience, a experience of aliveness, and later a form of expression. How did your audiences respond to a circus um, performance that carried those subjects of loss and suicide uh, into it? I think they were profoundly impacted. You know, they, they rose to their feet at the end. Um, it felt a little bit like a memorial service mm. for maybe not anyone in specific, or maybe from my brother and my co-creator Lynn also lost her brother to suicide. So there were some specific names, but it felt very corporate in our shared experience. And we took the audience through an emotional journey. We began with joy and delight, with playfulness, with sibling relationships depicted through a duo trapeze act. And we went through this sort of journey of someone who's falling apart and feeling out of control. There was a spinning, spinning on the lira, which is the aerial hoop, and then a sear wheel where people look and feel super out of control. And I think our audience sensed that. Um, and, and so in the course of the evening through these different apparatuses and body expressions, we kind of went on a journey together and it did feel like a corporate shared expression of grief, the kind that I think are really important for us as humans, but we don't always have a lot of space for them. Mm -hmm. um, I, I recently watched, I watch all the grief shows, you know, the, the, Sometimes I watch the ones that don't identify themselves, and other times they do. Uh, uh, what's it called? Um, uh, Life and Beth. Uh, it's an Amy Schumer thing. And the reason I thought of it is that they, she and her sister 
um, re- they they do a do over on their mother's memorial hmm. because the first one just didn't cut it, you know. Mm-hmm. And I really liked that, and I'm sort of thinking about it as you're speaking. You know, we can we can keep having rituals for our grief that fit us at the time. If I did a memorial for my wife now, it would be extremely different than the one when she actually died. Um, You know, and, and there would be something beautiful in that. Uh, I think I do it every week in the show, but you know, that's a little different uh, for sure. When we think about memorial, it's the same root word as memory. So we're, we're always in memorial. We're always in memory. Indeed. But it's not always a shared community experience. Right. That's, that's I, what I think is different. And, and is powerful to have that space, to have the shared community experience, although thwarted, right, for many families, just tricky to go through the memorial process. In my dad's memorial, my mom wished to have a pastor um, do part of the memorial, and he called my dad Tom. My dad's name was Tim. Like mm-hmm. it was just a very frustrating intrusion in my my feeling, right? Is this a right. frustrating intrusion of a stranger into our family? Like, who are you? Go away. <laughs> you don't but even know him. <laughs> yeah, I didn't invite you, but my mother did. So here we go. Oh, I, I so resonate with that <laughs> because you can't really, you know, somebody owns the memorial more than other people right? Mm -hmm. Your mom owned your dad's memorial, but that may have left things undone for you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. We did have a a cookie buffet, which was a hit with my kids. So there you go. (laughs) You mean they got to eat as many cookies as they wanted? They were totally unsupervised when it came to cookies. They probably ate like 20 cookies. A child's dream. They're like, when's the next person going to die? Cookies. That's valid. (laughs) And that's, you know, I, I grew up with a minister dad. So the after thing with the million cookies and the casseroles and the punch is just so familiar. (laughs) I'm sure you can see the whole scene. I can see it all in my mind. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Not always that helpful about grief because then nobody has maybe completely let the grief happen and then it's all cookies and and punch, but um, still community, showing up in community. There's not a lot of like, wailing and weeping or, you know, like not necessarily a lot of emotional expression, at least in, in the community that I grew up in. It's like sit properly for the service, be polite, listen intently, and then go have snacks. Yes. As you can imagine, since I sing at a lot of um, black churches in funerals, we're asked often, it's totally different. Yes. Crying is absolutely okay. Um, It's loud. You know, it's just extremely different. And I find it relieving to be a part of something like that. Let's go to a break and then we'll come back and talk some more. Beautiful. Listeners, you can find me at weatheringgrief.com or you can find me at the Good Grief Host page. And to find Sherry Walling, 
go to www.sherry, that's S-H-E-R-R-Y, walling, W-A-L-L-I-N-G.com. Back after the break. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com slash goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com slash goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Functional Medicine with Dr. Robbins looks at how natural healing and biological dentistry can safely and effectively treat most health problems. You'll hear about the innovations in both traditional and alternative medicine therapies with doctors and dentists, along with discussions with chiropractors, medical experts, homeopaths, naturopaths, and energetic healers. It's great to have all the best information in one place. And Functional Medicine with Dr. Robbins brings it all together. Listen Thursdays at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific, on Voice of America Health and Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Sherry Walling author of Touching Two Worlds, which is available for pre-order now, coming out in the end of July. And Sherry, in in this segment, I want to talk, uh, you know, obviously continue this talk on grief, but I also wanted to bring in just a little bit uh, the article you wrote about the great resignation Mm. and the way that Grief has, first of all, become more public (laughs) during the pandemic because so many people are in active grieving, but also that it's caused people to reassess what they're doing with their lives. And I'd love for you to share a little bit uh, of your thoughts on that, and then I'll have you read a little more from your book. Yeah, I think, as you well know, grief is one of those 
sort of catalytic experiences that opens us up to the big questions around, am I spending my time in the way that I wish to be? And the pandemic has really created these ripple effects in the way that work happens. Obviously, people work from home, all of these things shifted, but many, many people have made different employment choices in the last six months, really than we've seen before historically. And I, I, so it's called the great resignation. And I, I think it really has a lot to do with grief and the kinds of questions that people are asking when um, life is lost and there's a pervasive sense of danger and sort of the fragility of life, even if you don't know someone directly lost to COVID. And people are asking questions around what's the best use of their days. And it's really shifted how, uh, how work happens. Yeah, I know in my own personal world, no close losses from COVID, but um, all three of our children um, found us more fragile. And the youngest one was working from home. She spent months and months and months with us, which I have to tell you, it was more than we've seen of her since about ninth grade because she was one of those busy do a million things people. Yeah. And suddenly she was in our home all the time, <laughs> mostly happy to be there. It was, it was very dramatic, but I think it was somewhat related to um, an awareness that loss happens that, that they all wanted one of them to be keeping an eye. Hmm. Yeah. Um, it's worn off a little bit, of course, but <laughs> but I I think it's it's in there somewhere, you know, this idea of keeping an eye on the people that you care about. And um it's it's sort of similar to that always say I love you before you say goodbye and yeah. you know what you were talking about earlier. And well, I think when there's such a pull towards being with your precious people doing work that is not deeply meaningful or perhaps entirely necessary just becomes the wrong trade-off. So people have stopped making that trade-off. I feel that I have to say a word that that has very much impacted women more than men because still women carry a load on children. Yes. So I think many people just couldn't sustain the weight of their work life and their children. Yeah. Um, that's a different impact of COVID, but still an impact of COVID. And, and some have argued that that will sort of set back women's equal pay and accomplishment in the workplace, you know, decades, because so many women in particular have, um, you know, stopped their professional advancement because of the need to care for others. And, and maybe, you know, I, I don't overtly say that that's going backwards. I think people are making choices and hopefully those choices are choices that are meaningful and important, but it, it certainly is a conversation that shapes women's lives differently than it does men's. Well, I'll, I'll put out an optimistic view that someone will notice that that's a systemic thing going on. Mm. It's not that women mm. <laughs> just want to quit. <laughs> no, it's uh, sustainability, I guess. 
I'd love for you to read this is a bit of a strange segue, I guess, but I just love this passage in your book about the special art of crying on airplanes. Um, I actually it's it's kind of related, like showing yourself to be vulnerable in public, right? Um, that that does relate to the same subject of uh, you know, people were their babies were coming to work with them, plus their cats and dogs. Um, right, it's all out for everybody to see. <laughs> exactly. If you were having a particularly rough day, it might show on the screen, all of that. Yep. Could you share that? Sure. So this essay is called The Special Art of Crying on Airplanes. I've perfected the art of crying on an airplane. Two days after my brother Dave died, I flew from Atlanta to Punta Cana in the Dominican Republic. I was on my way to facilitate a corporate retreat, an event that I'd been planning carefully for three months. Perhaps it was not the best choice to stick with my professional plans, but at the moment I welcomed the distraction. I cried the entire flight, three hours. In an act of great mercy, I was upgraded to a window seat in first class. I could huddle toward the wall and keep my tears more or less to myself. I was in a big seat, so there were a few more inches between me and the stranger next to me. My seatmate was either drunk or sleep deprived or both. Either way, she was one notch above comatose and absolutely unconcerned with me. But oddly, I sat by her again five days later on my return flight. She recognized me, so perhaps I should give her more credit. Perhaps she was compassionately pretending not to notice the fact that I was an utter mess on a first-class flight to paradise. She couldn't know that my baby brother's body had just been recovered from a field in northern Montana. Air travel has been a big part of my life during all this. When my dad was diagnosed from cancer, I decided that I would go see him every three months. It was a lot of trips. Sometimes I went with the kids. Mostly I went by myself. Visiting him that often was one of my best decisions. I flew from Minneapolis, where I live, to Sacramento, the closest airport to my parents' house, at least 15 times in the span between my dad's diagnosis and his memorial service. I have it down to a perfectly efficient system. There's a Thursday evening flight on Delta. I never check a bag. I step off the plane, I walk to the rental car shuttle, I rent with Hertz, and I have gold status, so I choose the car that I want without stopping at the desk. If the kids are with me, I let them pick the color. They always choose by color. (laughs) Once they wanted a bright red Jeep, which was fun in principle, but with that plastic roof rattling down a lot of flying up Interstate 5. I leave the airport, drive 20 minutes north to Woodland to stop at In-N-Out. I use the drive-thru and nourish my inner Californian with a double-double in a brown box and fries and a vanilla milkshake if I'm feeling particularly decadent. I drive the two hours north to my parents' house in Reading. All these steps choreographed with the efficiency and grace of a business traveler. However, when I'm on a plane, I have to be still. The grace and efficiency disappears. When there are limited things to occupy my mind, I do a lot of thinking and writing and crying. The truth is I cry all the time on airplanes now. Since February of 2017, I can't remember a single tearless flight. I used to visit 
visit casually with my seatmates and then eventually put on my headphones and do some work and watch a movie. I exchanged business cards, networked, got restaurant recommendations. I made new friends and learned new things. I kept up with new movies. I was a fully functional grown up with graceful social skills. I don't speak to anyone now. I know it is coming. There's too much stillness and too many grief associations for me to get through a flight without some tears shed. Most of this book was written through tears from a window seat. I'm a huge fan of the window seat. It affords the most privacy. I'm also a huge fan of wearing a hoodie. I'm a grown-up professional with three kids in a nice car, but I have been known to pull the hood of a sweatshirt almost over my eyes as the ultimate act of please don't talk to me. And thank goodness for earbuds. I know that people can see me crying. The flight attendants are extra tender with me when they ask what I'd like to drink. They usually give me two bags of Cheez-Its or two little bottles of gin instead of one. One woman who sat in the middle seat was reading over my shoulder as I wrote the section of this book about recovering or receiving Dave's autopsy. She looked at me for a long time, I suppose contemplating what kind comforting things she might say. In the end, she didn't say anything. And that is fine with me. Being in grief on a plane is to have an intensely personal experience in the midst of complete strangers. It is both excruciating, uncomfortable, and strangely comforting. I like that I'm not alone, and I don't feel any need to explain myself. On the plane in the window seat, I don't have to try to hide my tears from my children or try to convince them that mommy is really okay. I don't have to see my husband's gentle disappointment that, yes, I'm crying again. Yes, I'm still sad. Yes, I've failed to remember to unload the dishwasher or order the gluten-free bread. The strangers don't care. So long as I stay away from sobs or ugly cries, so long as there's no snot, they are content to honor the gentle stream of tears with dignified denial. They're not disappointed or dysregulated. They're tender or avoidant. Both work for me. I suppose they assume that there's a good reason for my emotional unrest and they leave me alone. And I love them for that. I, I, I have such a vivid picture of that. Uh, I, I didn't, uh, I was in the house with my wife, you know, so yeah. the tears on airplanes, not so much for me, but the idea that you just get taken over by feeling and, and that the way that other people respond to that can either help you or not help you. And that something about fr being free to just have your feelings is a great gift. Yeah, the anonymity is sort of nice. Alongside not being alone. <laughs> exactly. You're with others. But they, you know, you're not in each other's story. So it's just the sort of presence is kind of nice. <laughs> I can imagine that. Sherry, I want to thank you so much for being with me today. I've really enjoyed it. It's been a delight. Thank you so much, Cheryl. Again, go to sherrywalling.com. Um, there's a link to the book there. You can pre-order it everywhere you pre-order books, and it'll be out at the end of July. Next week, I'll have Elizabeth Hack, the editor of San Francisco Peace and Hope, Light the Sky. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Mm -hmm. 
Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.